Hello and welcome to today's episode of Nucleus Investment Insights. Today we're going to talk about indexing and the extraordinary investment opportunities that indexes offer. The popularity and growth of indexing and exchange-traded funds has been astronomical in the past decade. With total funds under management and passive funds now exceeding active funds, and there's no sign that this trend is going to stop anytime soon. On the agenda, we'll explain what indexes actually are, then we'll delve into the numerous index trading opportunities. Uh, Damien's informed me that there are now more indexes than stocks in the US, uh, which for me seems hard to believe, but we'll dig into this in more detail and have a look at facts. Next, we'll talk about smart beta indexes and how they work. Then we'll discuss the next generation of ETFs called direct indexing. This is growing exponentially, uh, exponentially overseas, and we think the same will happen here in Australia. Then we'll help you understand custom indexing. And as always, we'll cover the investment implications at the end. My name's Sam Kerr. I'm the Senior Financial Advisor at Nucleus Wealth. And today, as always, I want to welcome the Founder and Chief Investment Officer at Nucleus Wealth, Damien Klassen. Damien, welcome. Thanks, Sam. Excellent. Uh, so just a quick reminder before we get started, if you enjoy our content, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and click the bell below to be notified when we go live or have a new episode recorded. Alternatively, you can follow us on your preferred podcast platform as our show is available on all the majors. And if you'd like to look at the slides in more detail, we'll post them in the show notes this afternoon and you can view these at nucleuswealth.com forward slash webinars. So now we've got that bit of housekeeping out of the way. Uh, Damien, I'll hand it over to you to, to get us started. Yeah, thanks, Sam. So um, I thought I'd start a little bit basic and then we'll, we'll, we'll jump into the, the more complicated stuff in a minute. But, but, you know, this whole idea of what actually are indexes. And so, I mean, really, it's just a, a collection of stocks that somebody's created some rules and they're going to they're gonna buy those stocks for you. Um, uh, or, or they're going to track the performance of those stocks, sorry, is, is a better way to put it. Um, then off the back of those indexes, often you get um, either managed funds or uh, or exchange-traded funds, which will then create the actual baskets of securities and get out and, and, and trade those and sort of try and replicate the performance. So, uh, yeah. The what's been happening over the last sort of 10, 20 years is is this massive rise in terms of the the amount of fun that's that's actually in um, what you'd call passive assets. So so following indexes and basically just saying, well, whatever the index rules are, that's what we're going to do, and um, we're just going to invest the money that way and and take a, a much lower fee um, in, in return for that, and then uh, you know with with the view that. That that lower fee can offset, uh, you know, what the if there's any performance difference, and um, you know, I think there's a lot of um, you know a lot of diff lot of argument about um, you know who is the you know are active funds better or are passive funds better and 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 all that sort of stuff, um, and lots of different places you can go to for the debate about that. I guess the issue for me is is I always think about the market as being um, as, as as needing to add up to something, so. Um, if, if you're out there saying, well, passive funds, um, you know, by definition are, are always going to underperform by a little bit in terms of you, you they're, they're going to do whatever the index is, um, minus whatever their fees are and, and trading costs. And, and, and so, um, so, so effectively, you know, if you're buying an index fund, you're, you're saying, I'm, I'm going to do the average, whatever the average of the market is. Um, there's some that come out and then say, well, equity funds, um, underperform. 
and and then they say and then they, you look at the same types of studies that look at retail investors and retail investors are underperformed by by a lot more than that again um and and, and then you sort of and and, and so you know, i guess the pitch that that some people have is well in, in uh, you know these passive assets are the best and and that's the part that sort of sticks with me is going well no no what, you, what you're talking about there is you're basically saying everything's below average and, and and so we should take the average one as being the best um and when you dig a little bit more into the numbers is is what you generally find is is that the active funds um, tend to outperform, but then it's a question about how much they're charging. And so if you're paying, say, 2 and 20, which is like a, a common uh, thing for a hedge fund where, where the hedge fund takes 2% of, of, of the um, uh, 2% as a fee, and then they take 20% of any outperformance, um, then they're, you know, they're probably outperforming for you, but they're they're probably taking all that back and and, poss- and quite possibly more than that in in fees. And so it is that part about you know um, I guess being aware that uh, in in those debates the, the thing that always sticks to me is saying well somebody must be outperforming. And so if we know retail investors are, are significantly under sort of about two percent per annum, and most of that and is Damien, bad timing. What, yeah, what what is what is that attributed to? Most of it's to bad timing. Um, because what happens is when the stock market goes up, everyone feels really good and goes out and buys stocks. And when the stock market goes down, they feel really bad and sell stocks. And so, um, you know, th- there are other factors as well, but but that's that's the biggest one. And um, and, and effectively, what you know, in, in when you when you think about it from a, from a big picture perspective, is it, it might sound right. Is like okay, I feel good because everything's going up, and so therefore I can buy, or or I feel bad because stock market's falling. Something things must be wrong. I might sell. Is effectively what you're saying is I'm going to sell. Whenever the market's low, and I'm going to buy whenever it's high, and so that's and that's what why um, retail investors tend to underperform. Um, yeah. So okay. So so we've got these indexes, and the question now is they've grown so big though um, that it's, they're actually starting to make a difference in terms of uh, the performance of the overall market. Now there are people who who will argue that that um, because of the indexes, we've lost we're losing price discovery. So because the indexes, are, are, they're very indiscriminate, they just buy whatever's in the index um, without regard to whether it's a good company or a bad company or whatever. It's just, if it's in the index, I buy it. And, and so, um, you know, the argument is that at a certain stage, these indexes um, are, are starting to, to, to push out the, the, the value of the price and, and starting to misprice assets. Now, um, I sort of, I, I again, have a bit of a problem with that argument um, in that, especially now, if, if we're talking about you know, there's more. There are more passive than than active. Um, probably, it's, it is hard to to judge with some of these ones, but um, there's still a lot of active people out there. And the active, you know, you, you don't need. Um, it's a matter of talking about you know how much free float. So let's say we've got a billion dollar company, and it used to be that you know ninety percent of the people investing in that billion dollar company were all active investors. You know, trading with each other and trying to work out the right price, and, and only ten percent were passive. Um, and so effectively what you had was uh, you know $100 million was bought regardless and $900 million was 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 where you sort of price discovery now it's probably you know $600 million is bought but you've still got $400 million of people out there going for price discovery and trying to you know and and people shorting and and long and and all these types of things so you know in my view um it, it's a matter about what you think the free float of a company is so how much of the company is actually actively traded and um and as long as in, as long as there's enough of that, um, that's that's where I, I think we'll still keep seeing price discovery within these within indexes. So, um, but having said that, there are a lot of things that pop up 
uh, and that's what a lot of this um, is about is a lot of what we want to talk about today is where do you get investment opportunities because of the rise of the indexes um, you know and, and a lot of that is around stocks coming in and dropping out of indexes um, and in a uh, in a prior job sort of a couple a couple of jobs ago so it must be uh, you know I was doing a lot of quanta quant analytics and a lot of uh, quantitative assessment of companies and, and quantitative um, uh, strategy in terms of tactical asset allocation, which were the right sectors to be in and which were the right you know, assets, bonds, and all that type of stuff like that. Uh, and as a bit of a side gig, I, I also did um, you know, looking at indexes and what stocks were coming in and dropping out of the indexes. And even then, so this was, um, yeah, this was sort of eight, 10 years ago. Uh, even then, you know, to, to my embarrassment, you know, I'd spend all this time doing this work for, for, for quant strategy. And, and then I'd, I'd spend a little bit of time on, on the indexes and, I, and we used to get paid more as a broker, um, yeah, for the for the research I wrote on, you know, what stock was coming into the index, which was sort of pretty much a, a simple calculation, um, and uh, and that's because there's now so much money on uh, going in that what you're finding is sort of big publicly traded indexes. Um, when stocks come in, it really pushes the price up, and that's where we get some some trading opportunities that, that I'll go into a little bit more detail, um, uh, you know, in a minute. But first, I thought Damien, I'd, sorry, uh, we've, we've just had a question from uh, from Andy Reid, uh, and he's asking, what's your opinion on market cap weighted indexes versus uh, equal weight index funds? And if yeah, you can just sure. explain what they are as well, please. Yeah. So, so basically what most indexes we're going to talk, I'm going to talk about are market cap weighted indexes. So what that means is um, you buy the biggest stocks out there. And when, when I say the biggest stocks, um, it, it's, it is a little bit of a... a, a um, it's a little bit of a non in, not it's, it's a non obvious um, definition of it because what you do is you take the the total size of a company so how many shares out there are out there and then what's the share price and you multiply those together but then what happens is is we actually deduct off that any of the shares that aren't publicly traded or are owned by large um, shareholders that that hold sort of big blocks so if you've got say um, you're looking at uh, you know, Fox and, and you might take off the Rupert Murdoch holdings off that. So you say, well, look, that's a, he's an insider. He owns all these, he owns all these shares and, and him and his associates. And so um, they're not actually being actively traded. So in terms of the, the size of that company in the overall index, I'm going to exclude the, the Rupert Murdoch shareholders and just look at the shareholdings of the other people within that. Um, so, okay. So, so we're putting together indexes in that way. So it's basically all, all the biggest ones. So, so what you find is that, if you're doing it as a size-based one, then you're definitely um, it, the the performance of that index will be a lot closer to what the average investor is seeing. So, because the average investor is vest, investing, you know, based on size, there's more people invested in in a Microsoft or or you know a Tesla or or, or Google's the, the the biggest companies in the world than what there is a, a a much smaller company but still quite big, say like a WiseTech or something like that in in Australia. So so by by Overweighting your, your those Microsofts and, and things like that in a portfolio, you get a better feel for what the average investor is doing. Um, there are arguments about equal, equal weighting, and um, a lot of that for me comes down to uh, really what taking what you're usually taking is a bit of a size bet, um, and and because what's happening is you're you're basically going you're buying more of the small cap stocks than what you're buying of the large cap stocks. So so in a in a portfolio that has both both say WiseTech and and Google in it, you're basically saying I'm going to treat WiseTech as being equivalent to Google and and buy the same amount of shares as it. And so 
effectively what I've done is is, is bought a lot more small cap stocks by doing that way. Uh, and, and there's um, it, it will vary as to when as to when which one outperforms and underperforms. Uh, I think from my perspective, you generally find um, you know it's not exclusively, but you generally find the market cap weighted stocks. Um, what will happen is you'll you'll get stocks that are, are, are more diversified on their own uh, and tend to be lower volatility than, than small cap stocks. Um, and uh, they're, they're usually higher quality and will tend to do better in, in downturns. Uh, when markets are, are really booming, though, that's when small caps tend to uh, tend to do the best. And so, um, you know, equal weight versus market weight will, um, you know, is a, a big issue with it is what type of market regime are you in? And so if, you, if you're in one way where you think you want quality and you're concerned about markets falling or, or you're at least, you know, you want some less volatility, then the market cap weighted index is, is more likely to be one for you. Um, if you're thinking things are booming and, and small caps are going to go great, then then an equal weighted index will, will, will probably perform better. But then again, in that situation, maybe you just go straight out and buy a small cap index anyway. So. Um, yeah, Damien, I, I saw some uh, a chart uh, comparing the returns of the equal weight S and P five hundred to the uh, market cap weight, and it was very similar returns. But like you say, the uh, the sequence of returns was very different. Yes, uh, and, you know, with with the uh, market cap weight index, you got so much concentration in just a few stocks these days. You know, the Googles, the Microsofts, Amazons. You know those big behemoths. Um, yeah. You know, market cap weighted well, index. Maybe you got a you know a bit more diversification. Yeah. Um. Well, and I guess I guess it's the issue is really what are you what are you trying to do? Because if you if you're benchmarking yourself, because if you're going to benchmark yourself against say the the S and P five hundred, which is the the biggest five hundred stocks in the US, or say that the MSCI World, which is a the developed market um sort of benchmark, uh, then their market cap weighted indexes and, and you're comparing yourself to those and seeing if you can out, outperform them um, uh, or if you can do better. If you're saying, I'm going to flip to an equal weighted index, then you're basically saying, well, I'm, I'm not sort of interested in what everyone else is doing in terms of a, a weighted average of, of the biggest stocks. Now I've got my own sort of index and, and I'm stepping outside that. So um, yeah, because that's, I think in the end, there's sort of, uh, you can either measure yourself versus an index of, of what's actually out there, or you can sort of try and create your own index or, or, or you know, measure yourself to something different to, to what other people are investing in. And, and that sort of opens you up to, well, as long as you're happy with that benchmark, then then that's fine. But um, you've got to recognize you've chosen a benchmark that's different to everyone else. Yeah, yeah. I, and that's a good point. I think it comes back to, you know, what your intentions are um, mm -hmm. and selecting the investment. Yeah. So let's talk first about some of the, the biggest global indexes. Um, so there's a, there's a bunch of different providers. Um, MSCI is probably the most common one um, out there um, in, in terms of benchmarked for, um, for institutional investors. Um, uh, and then there's uh, the FTSE and then there's Standard & Poor's or S&P. Um, they've all got overlaps. They're all very similar in terms of the, um, the stocks that they have. Uh, the MSCI, which is the biggest one, they've got um, the, the most common ones, the ones we benchmark ourselves to as well, is the MSCI World, which is about 1,600 stocks. It can vary. Um, it makes up, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but it might be 90% of all of listed stocks by market cap. Um, and uh, it's equivalent to about the, the ASX 60-odd. There's about 
60 to 70 stocks within it. Uh, and it's developed countries only. Uh, then you've got the MSCI Emerging Markets, which is about 800 stocks of, of the largest ones as well. And then um, a confusingly named, I think it's um, MSCI ACIWI Index, which you know, they obviously love their acronyms. Um, that's sort of got 9,000 odd stocks in it. It's about equivalent to the a, about ASX 200 and something stocks sort of sit within that um, index. So they're sort of your, um, uh, you know, you, you, your MSCI ACIWI makes up, you know, basically a global index of, 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 of small, medium and large stocks. Um, below that, um, so stocks that are outside the ASX 200, um, you'd usually call micro caps or, or at least um, um, you know, some sort of word sort of below small caps. Um, and those stocks, there's, there are tens of thousands of them, but they're, they're, they're individually, you can add them all up and they, they may sort of add up to, you know, maybe 1% or something like that at the overall um, size of the market. Because, you know, for eight, for 10,000 of those stocks, you, you get one, like one Google share or something like that, or less than, less than a Google, you know, in terms of yeah, lot, lots of penny dreadfuls in those ones. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and so, and, and then you also see, so with, on the Australian Stock Exchange, um, they, they sort of classify things as being um, uh, above the, the ASX 50, um, so above the top 50 stocks, that's the large cap part of the, the stock market. Um, between 50 and 100 is what they call the, the mid cap index. Um, between 100 and 300 is what they call the small cap index. So um, yeah, it's all a bit it is sort of stuff all a bit, a bit everywhere, but but if people if you hear people talking about small caps and, and large caps, um, it can be uh, you know it, they're very woolly lines. Each of the different um, providers all have different measurements, but but you know within Australia it's that um, yes, large caps is the 50, 50 to one hundred is mids, and then one hundred to three hundred is the, the smalls. Um, and some of the other ones you might hear that you sort of get a lot of different country indexes. Um, in the US, sort of your most common ones is your S and P 500, which is your biggest 500. Um, the Russell 2000 uh, is the stocks that are in the uh, are the small caps. Uh, that's sort of between a th the stocks between a thousand and three thousand in the US. So it's actually not the top two thousand stocks. It's it's the stocks between the the, the Russell 1000 and the Russell 3000. And then yeah, a whole bunch of other ones you see um, elsewhere. It is worth noting that um, there are a couple of weird indexes out there. Um, so the Dow, so that's the one which you, you hear a lot. So the US Dow, it's 30 stocks. Um, it's actually price weighted. So it's not equally weighted. It's not, it's not market cap weighted. It's weighted by how big the price is, um, which once you actually sort of dig into it, is, is a really weird way of doing things. So for example, if you have a stock do a split, um, uh, like we saw Amazon do or, or like we saw um, Google do, this year where they, they might split their shares by, by 10. So effectively what happens is um, the share price was say $1,000 and then they, for every one share you got, now you've got 10 shares. So the share, so all that's happened is you've just got 10 times as many shares, but the share price has gone from $1,000 to $100. So in most indexes, that doesn't make any difference because all, all that happens is is they're looking at the, the, the number of shares times the price and, and that hasn't changed. Um, in the Dow, it does actually change. All of a sudden, you've now got to, you know you, you've you've taken away ninety percent of um, of that stock's weight in the Dow. Um, uh, the Nikkei two two twenty five in Japan is also price weighted, so um, they're very different. It's just this weird arbitrary number. So I guess what I'm where I'm getting to with those is that 
um, you know, if you're looking at indexes, you genuinely want to measure yourself against um, those two aren't uh, examples of stock uh, of indexes. You, you you probably don't want to measure yourself against, and they're sort of more historical relics more than um, anything sort of useful that people trade off. Hey, Damien, uh, we've got another question uh, coming in from uh, from Cam. And he's asking, uh, uh, do you think it's correct that the rise of passive funds has reduced price discovery, uh, which he obviously touched on? Uh, mm. But then he's also asking about, do you think it's creating bubbles as well? Yeah, I think there's a, um, I think it can lead to it. And that's probably some of the smart beta side of, side to it that, that might be sort of helping to, 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 um, to push that along. Um, so in individual stocks, I think there are um, issues being created. As an overall market, look, I'm not as convinced. Um, I think we've had um, lots of bubbles in stocks um, well before uh, indices were, were, were part of the game. So, um, I, I, you know, I think they're certainly contributing in certain parts, but, but um, you know, human beings are pretty good at creating bubbles. And, and if it wasn't, if they weren't creating the bubble through indexes, say to tech stocks or, or something like that, they'd be creating an index, they'd be creating um, bubbles in other ways. So, uh, you know, there was a, um, I don't know, in the 70s, there was a, a nifty 50, you know, the stocks you could just buy and forget about that were, that were always going to be there, your Kodaks and your, your IBMs and all these, you know, big McDonald's, all these big companies that were just like, yeah, they're great companies. They're all, they'll always be great companies. Um, and, there, and there was a huge bubble in them. They just got so expensive. And a lot of them, well, I picked a couple of those. I picked didn't didn't actually do as well. But you know, something like McDonald's or whatever um, fell in price. Uh, you know, from that time, not because it got worse, um, but more because um, it just got so expensive at the time. So so you know, we get bubbles at all times. Um, these will contribute, but as I said, but but um, I think that's more about humans than it is about the actual indexes themselves. Yeah, and uh, it's very likely that that capital was earmarked to go into the market anyway, and it's just going in a, in a different form. Uh, you know, maybe it's yeah, going that's into right. Passive rather than, than active these days. Mm. So if we look at the country weights, because that's um, so I've picked this um, this really broad uh, MSCI one, the MSCI AC World. Um, uh, I, you know, ACWI World. <laughs> um, it's uh, so you can see that about sixty percent of the market is still the U.S. Though, so even you got like whatever it is, almost ten thousand stocks, um, and the U.S. actually only makes up uh, might only make up three or four thousand of those stocks. Like it's it's not, um, uh, but but the, because they're so large, and, and a lot of the stocks that you get listed in the U.S. Um, they're notionally um, U.S. stocks, but but really they're they're global stocks. Um, and so, you know, take something like a McDonald's. Um, it's a it's a pretty decent proxy for the world economy in terms of it's got you know it's got um, restaurants all over the place, and 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 that's where it generates its profits from everywhere. Um, and then you get something like I say, a Unilever that's listed or part listed in the Netherlands and listed in in London as well. Um, uh, and but it's but it's got heaps of its exposures in in the US, and so you know, despite the fact being listed there, it's you know it's it's a global stock as well. Um, you know, I talk about stocks in in Australia, uh, something like a CSL. Um, it's 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 a member of the Australian index, but but the reality is it generates most of its revenue from offshore, and so it's it's really a global stock rather than a um, an Australian particular stock. But if you look at the you know this one, you can sort of see that um, yeah. US is most of it. Uh, Japan six percent. Um, 
China, which you know, for for all the 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 rise and and you know GDP rise that it's had, its, it's stock market is still only three point three percent of the overall. So emerge, emerging markets are very small relative to the rest of the world, and Australia comes in at sort of two percentish of um, uh, of the globe. So so not a lot um, when you when you look at that from that perspective. Yeah, Damien, it's quite surprising that China is is so small on the global scale. You know, considering there's one point two billion people and you know. Uh, such a powerhouse in the world economy. Yeah, so and and, and it looks at a reflection of that the um, a lot of the the wealth is is caught up in their property market. Um, a lot of the wealth is um, is in state owned entities and, and and things like that that don't don't tend to have a, a high valuation. Um, well, and also are mostly government owned, and so they sort of get excluded from these. So so that's a great example of a you might find a stock that's um, you know a big Chinese stock that's a, a, some some big um, state owned entity there that. It might have a market cap of $100 billion, but if 80% of it is owned by the Chinese government, um, for the sake of these indexes, um, they'll only treat it as, as, as a $20 billion stock because they're saying, well, the, the free float of that stock is only actually um, $20 billion. That's the amount people can buy. And so we're not going to judge it as being $100 billion as part of the, the, the market. So some of it's that, but most of it is just that China is just doesn't have that much of its wealth in the, in the stock market. I mean, the other the other one that's interesting that doesn't even make the the grade here is is um, Germany, um, because a lot of the companies over there are privately owned as well, and so um, you know there's a it's a it's a question a little bit of for for a very big powerhouse economy it doesn't um, you know you'd expect to see um, or, or it's it's the amount of shares listed in Germany is lower than what you'd expect based on the amount of trading it does and the amount of you know its size in the world economy. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And why why do you think that is? Uh, you know, in Germany, that uh, the private companies, largely private companies, for that. Yeah, but yeah. why why do you think that is? Oh, an historical um, uh, a lot of family owned companies. Um, I think the legal structures there are, are probably more conducive as well to to that. Um, and uh, and and also, I think the companies in 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 Germany also often have a. Um, uh, They've got more of a, a I don't know, you call it, maybe call it a social compact with with the, with the economy in terms of saying that you know the uh, the workers need to benefit. Workers often sit on the board, um, so mm-hmm. so it's not just the uh, the companies aren't acting just for shareholders. Whereas the US is probably the most, um, I guess, uh, capital capitalistic in terms of that point of view, and in terms of saying yes, shareholder the shareholder is king. And so the company's job is to maximise shareholder wealth, and if that means screwing over your employees and and your customers, then then sort of so be it. Whereas I think um, you know the German companies are are a bit more um, circumspect about you know making sure that that, that things are shared equally between, uh, sure shared more equally um, between uh, between workers and, and shareholders. Yeah, that's interesting. Thanks for that. The other one I wanted to highlight um, is the set, some of the sector indexes, and so. Um, uh, and particularly Australia versus the world. So I've, I've got some sort of pie charts up, but I'll, I'll pull out the, they're, they're probably a bit small to be seen on screen. I'll, I'll pull out the most interesting parts. So, you know, Australia, you look at um, financials plus materials um, plus real estate, and you get basically 50% of the market um, between those three sectors. Um, you know, in, in, the, in, in the global market, financials are, are you know, less than 15% of the market. Um, materials are, are, are five and um, real estate's three. So, you know, you, you end up with, with well less than half of that um, in, the global, in the globe. So Australia, if you're buying Australia 
um, you are buying a big exposure to financials and you're buying a big exposure to materials um, and, and in particular um, uh, resources, which is an even smaller proportion of, of, the, of the actual overall material sector. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's worth noting that you, um, you know, just by buying the Australian market rather than buying, say, a global index, you've, make it, you've made a big asset allocation decision um, or a big sector allocation decision just from that decision um, to, to go heavily overweight financials versus the rest of the world and heavily overweight resources versus the rest of the world. I think resources might be one and a half percent maybe of the globe of global indexes. Um, oh, sorry, mining stocks. Mining stocks might be one and a half percent of the overall um, global index. And, and in Australia, they're more like, um, I don't know, 15 to, to 18 percent or something like that. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's dramatically different. Um, the other thing is uh, the the IT sector globally is about twenty percent. Um, now that doesn't necessarily include um, like there's lots of stocks that aren't in there. I think um, Amazon's not in that. Um, Google and Facebook aren't in that. They're in communication services. Uh, yeah, so this you, you it might not be all the stocks you, you sort of think that 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 sort of automatically pop into there. Uh, or Netflix, you know, isn't isn't into that information technology. So so that's twenty percent of the globe. The biggest sector there is. Um, for Australia, um, you know, the IT sector is is less than three percent. So you're sort of getting, you know, not you know, not quite ten times um, less exposure in Australia to that um, IT sector than what you would get overseas. Um, so yeah, very different market. And and so um, you know, keep in mind that if you're just going to buy an Australian index, you've made a you've made some pretty big sector decisions in you know incorporated in that in that um, in that decision. Uh, yeah, just just one thing to note on that chart. I've just noticed the uh, the colours don't exactly no, uh, don't match up. up across the global and the Australian. No, they go from the largest to smallest. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Apologies, that's a uh, they're both from the MSCI. Um, so thank thanks for commenting on my on my charts there, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I, I, I noticed. I, I agree. <laughs> if I had to put it together myself, which I probably should have, they, they should be the same colours. Anyway. Let's, let's talk about this index trade. So where, where are the trading opportunities and investment opportunities from this? So um, a lot of it is this in, index entrance and exits. And you can the, the amount of stock that can turn over can be well north of 10% of a stock when it, when it comes into an index now. So um, some of these major indexes, uh, especially if it's jumping into multiple indexes, you might see 20% of the stock, uh, of, the, of the, the available stock turnover Pretty much on the day that it goes in or out of the index, so it's it's a, it's a massive difference in terms of massive makes a massive difference to the uh, to the value of that stock and and and, um, and, and who owns it. So uh, the thing is, though, if you wait for the announcement, you miss out on most of this um, most of the gain because what happens is um, most of the gain happens that the announcement gets made. Share prices all adjust pretty quickly. Hedge funds, funds get out there and, and buy these stocks so that they can then sell them back to the index providers. So, because um, a lot of the a lot of the exchange traded funds or, or the um, the strict index ones, they basically need to buy it on that day. So they need to wait to the very last day, and then they go, um, you know, new stock. Tesla's just come just entered the um, the the, the S and P five hundred, um, and you know. Uh, a couple of stocks have fallen out. They have to wait until the very last day and then sell a bunch of things, buy Tesla, and then um, uh, and then off they go. Now they will try and do deals with with um, others to to make sure they've got the the stock available, depending upon you know 
how they, what their trading rules are and things like that. And there's also a lot of index players who who don't have to be as strict. They can sort of try and time it a bit more around the, around the edges. But you know, I guess the the thing is there is there are some massive changes, and so um, and that's what you know. As, in a previous life, um, you know, as I said, we used to I used to get paid more more for trying to predict um, these entrants um, than than for a lot of other research, just because there are, there's hedge funds out there who are who are basically trying to front run these and work out. Um, and and most and there are you know they're very they're quite simple the the, the calculations you you do. Um, you basically just need to track um, the, the a couple of things I've got there. Um, the three main ones, um, well, sorry, the four main ones is is your market cap changes. So stocks are getting bigger versus getting smaller. Um, almost always there's like an average calculation. And so it's not just a matter of saying, and, and it's working out when they do the assessment. So MSCI will do it over a three-month period and it's, it's a different three-month period. Um, to the the three month period that S and P will do, and and you know so there's all different things like that. Um, there's a there's a uh, basically a buffer zone is is the best way to think about it. So if a stock's trying to get into the uh, ASX 50, um, it probably needs to be rated pretty close to about the 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 40th biggest stock. Um, it might even be the 45th, but yeah. Anyway, it needs to be rated very high in terms of um, you can't just sort of go, oh, this stock's now number 50. It's going to kick out a stock and, and come in. It actually needs to get a, a reasonable buffer um, behind it. And then the same for stocks falling. Um, you know, if a stock falls and now it becomes stock number 51, um, it won't get kicked out of the index. It actually needs to fall a fair bit further before um, it will actually get sort of drop out. And so I, I sort of would think about it as, you know, some stocks will be forcing their way into the index and other stocks will be forcing their way out of the index. Um, but but depending upon what's happening at the time, you know there might be a, a big new listing and and there's a stock that's now in the ASX 50 is now you know ranked number 35 and so it's definitely going to force its way into the index and the smallest stock might only be number 51 and so it might actually drop out of the index even though it wouldn't sort of um, uh, wouldn't drop out of its own accord it's just the the lowest one on the list and so S and P will kick it out um, whereas MSCI is actually quite different. They've got sort of a, a different way they do it, and um, they'll just add it. They might just add that stock and not actually drop any stocks um, from the index at the time. So you've got that happening. You've always got stocks being taken over, and so you know needing to find new entrants. Um, most of them have sort of liquidity constraints on them as well, so they need to you know different. And all these um, uh, all the providers have different rules about the liquidity and how they measure it. So, but basically, you just need to make sure that um, there is enough stock trading that that people can buy it. Uh, MSCI will use um, some of the rules about foreign shareholders. So, so something like a, um, a Qantas that has rules about how many foreign shareholders it can have. Um, there might be limits for whether it can be in or out of the index. Um, that major shareholding thing I spoke about, that makes a big difference. So um, you know, sometimes what you find is a uh, uh, shares, and then that will actually increase what you know, I spoke about before, the free float. Um, and then all of a sudden, because of free floats increased, it, it just jumps straight into an index, at quite, often at quite a high weight, because it's all of a sudden there's all these extra shares out there available. Um, and then time, like if you're a, if it's a big new listing, um, uh, it it won't necessarily go straight into the uh, index. A lot of index providers will um, will make you know will make sure that it might need to be around for six months or, or twelve months before it's built up enough trading history. Um, but having said that, they'll often um, uh, every now and again on on massive sort of new new entrants, they will make special they'll make um, 
exceptions and put things in. So um, yeah, so a lot of different moving parts. But again, it's 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 there's um, you know there's pretty there's pretty good trading profits for for um, for hedge funds, which is why they 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 look to do it. Um, but keep in mind that if you're if you're seeing the announcement that XYZ stock just went into the index, um, and then you rush out and buy it with the view that oh, okay, twenty percent of it's going to turn over, you know, in in three weeks' time, um, you probably missed the the uh, the upside. There's um, yeah, it might still go up for for other reasons, but um, the 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 actual trading part of it, most of that happens before the stock um, before the actual announcement gets made by these index providers. So um, some of the other opportunities, though, is that there's there's because we spoke about the smart beta, and I'll, I'll go a little bit more into de detail about the the um, the smart beta, but um, there's yeah, later on about some of the strategies. But it's worth noting that um, there's a lot of exchange traded funds out there that that they end up holding very concentrated portfolios or very concentrated um, holdings of particular stocks. So you might have, say, a dividend stock um, portfolio in Australia. And it might end up holding, I don't know, five percent of of a stock like Fortescue, um, because it pays such a huge dividend. Um, but Fortescue is a type of stock that's um, quite volatile in terms of whether it pays a dividend or doesn't pay a dividend. And so, uh, it's a type of stock that can very quickly go from being in one of these indexes to to not in one of these indexes. And when it does, you might find that all of a sudden, you know, five percent of the stock gets gets sold because. Um, an ETF had, you know, a big ETF had happened to it with a smart beta strategy it happened to build up a lot of exposure to it. Um, there's also, so a lot of people, uh, you, you can download all this data from, from exchange traded funds, like you can get the, the holdings that they have. And, and there's a lot of people sitting out there doing this analysis in terms of trying to work it out. Um, and and uh, some of the funds that they got big for a while, they're, they're, they're probably not quite as big now, but the, there's some minimum volatility funds they're called. And what they try and do is they try and buy stocks that are um, with, with low volatility. And so it's sort of the, it's a bit of a, a weird feature of, um, of stocks that if you can buy these low volatility stocks, um, in theory, under the CAPM, they should give you a low return, but, but in practice, they actually give you a higher return. Um, the issue in a, in a smart beta fund is you might have a stock that jumps 20%, um, and that's actually enough volatility to get it kicked out of the minimum volatility index. So, so a good event might actually lead to this stock then getting kicked out and then falling back as as um, you know two or three percent of the, the the stock gets sold because it's 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 dropped out of a smart beta index. And um, and they've all got different timings as well. But but you know the the bigger hedge funds will track a number of these these um, uh, ETFs and and what stocks are in there and and what stocks you know, look at the rules and try and work out. Um, what's going to happen in terms of stocks getting kicked out. Um, and that, that can flow through. I've got a return on equity, but there's a, a um, it's probably more of a, a shorthand for saying financials. So companies report their earnings um, and, and that then changes which portfolios, some of these stocks, some of these smart beta strategies about how much um, you know, a company makes in terms of returns or how much it makes in terms of its price to earnings ratios or its dividend yield or whatever it is, but things can change and the market participants can clearly see people who are following it can clearly see oh right this stock no longer fits the criteria to be in this smart beta strategy and we can we know that 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 the fund that follows that you know rebalances every month that on the 30th or whatever you know and so then they can um or often it's usually more quarterly or semi-annually and so they can sort of front run and go okay i know that you know that stock's going to drop out and it's a big holding and so 
um, yeah, sort of try and manipulate them to, to, to a certain extent. Um, yeah, so that's sort of the that's sort of the the, the, the main trading um, opportunities in it. Um, there are then investment opportunities with all these as well, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more, uh, sort of in, on some of the later slides in terms of the um, uh, yeah what the smart beta things do and and the other things you, the other sort of investment opportunities you can get as opposed to sort of how can you trade these things. Uh, so the next one, you know, we spoke about this. Are there more indexes and stocks? And absolutely, yes, there are. Um, now I don't, I can't, I can't, couldn't find any updated data on this, but so this is sort of from five years ago, um, was when it first went that way in the US, and it is definitely worse than this now. So um, in the US, there was um, you know whatever it is, four thousand odd stocks in two thousand sixteen, and that was sort of the first the first year where indexes shot past them. Um, and there is, um, and that hasn't changed. Like that, that the index, the growth in indexes is as as has been as extreme. Um, they're now much more easy. The computing power makes them much more easy to calculate. Um, all the index providers are, are trying to do custom indexes for, um, uh, for 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 various clients. And so what that sort of means is that the um, uh, there is now yeah yeah there's more. I guess I guess in the end you know the way to think about it is there is more. Um, uh, there's more ways you can put together stocks. So if I if I if I have ten stocks, you know, I can put those together in a, in a whole bunch of different combinations of ways, and so I can end up with far more than ten different permutations and combinations. And so, um, you know, I guess that's the way to think about these indexes, and and largely they're they're um, um, you know these indexes are uh, they're getting more and more customized the further you go down the list. And Damien, with the with the you know more indexes than stocks, is that tradable indexes like ETFs, or is that just indexes that you know S and P and MSCI, you know these types of companies have made up? That's just indexes that that, that all these other MSCIs and S and Ps have made up. Um, yeah. The uh, the tradable ones not far behind though, and actually it's probably, probably in front. Uh, would it be probably in front? That's quite yeah, probably in front. Um, so I've got a, another chart with the uh, just the ETFs um, in the US. So and that's that's I've got that a little bit more, got a few more years in there. Um, but you know that's sort of over two thousand ETFs and you know the, the four thousand odd stocks that we saw. Um, uh, then then there'll be unlisted trusts, and so yeah, almost without a doubt, that would be more than the the. Yeah, more tradable instruments there than the number of companies. So yeah, it's uh, well, you know, and, and keep, think about it another way is uh, each one of those things has an investment fee on it, and, and um, <laughs> the uh, financial markets love to charge an investment fee. And if we can, we can slightly alter one of them and and charge an investment fee to people, then um, that is what uh, investment market participants will do. Um. So, so yeah, so 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 that's the um, yeah the, the growth has been dramatic, and the number of I think I had a chart obviously at the start. I don't think I've talked about that, but the actual the amount of it in the amount of money in funds has obviously grown um, uh, beyond you know in these things has now grown beyond the active ones. Uh, then the, so that's sort of it's probably better to talk uh, custom indexing here. So that, so 
you know, a lot of the re reason for the rise is that these index specialists can just make these, they've got all the, the they've built tools effectively now to just make them quite efficiently. Um, and it means they've got, they, they can come up with quite unique strategies. And so, um, you know, I, I went to an S&P thing earlier on in the week and they were talking about how they've got, you know, they, they were using an example of um, an advisor who wanted 5% of their money in crypto. And so they had a, an asset allocation strategy that was, you know, part bonds, part equities, part cash, part crypto. And that was their specific one. They want to see if they're outperforming or underperforming versus that. So, um, and and at that point, you know, you can have any one of a number of different, you know, things in terms of, well, is it 5% crypto or is it 7% crypto or is it 3%, you know, and all of a sudden you've got just created yourself three new indexes or, or you know, whatever it is in terms of a whole bucket of, of new indexes that you can then, um, yeah, you can then use. So the, so the good thing for that is, um, you know, it does help measure some of these sort of more unique strategies. Um, but the bad thing is there's definitely the potential for just index shopping where people sort of go, well, you know, I've, I've gone to S&P and I've got them to create me this index that sounds good, but there's a structural flaw to it that I know I can, is, is much easier to, to, to outperform. And therefore, you know, that's what I'm going to measure myself against something that I think can I can outperform and uh, collect, you know, potentially collect a uh, performance fee on or, or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, the more indexes, obviously, the, the um, it, they, they, can, <clears throat> they can cater for, for, for more accurate and, more, and better measurement, but um, there's just as much um, scope for them to, to uh, just create com complexity that managers can hide behind. Um, so then, then I wanted to talk with Smart Beta. Unless there's any, do you want to, is actually, is there any questions we should get up in the meantime, Sam? Uh, there's a few comments rolling through. Uh, no specific questions at the moment. Um, so Cam, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, he's saying there's lots, lots to consider about exchange traded funds, um, especially with the exchange rate risk uh, when buying overseas ETFs uh, and. Um, you know, he's saying also the hedge funds, they they can sort of charge higher fees on, on those and also the spreads. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, you know, there's exchange traded funds sort of very, you know, there's definitely some really good um, uh, exchange traded funds out there uh, with very low fees. But the problem is um, uh, they sort of trade, they trade, there are funds as well, sort of trading off the good name of other of other um, hedge funds to be able to, sorry of other exchange traded funds in order to be able to charge quite high fees, and um, uh, the market making side of it and how the how they're crossing the spread and things like that that can really make a difference in terms of how a um, an ETF trades. So, and what I mean by that is um, there can be bounds. So, so if you buy like say a Vanguard S and P five hundred fund. Um, there's lots of people trying to arbitrage, lots of market makers who are, who are all out there trying to arbitrage it down to the last few cents. And so you're going to get a good price because they're all fighting with each other to, to, to take your money and, and go out and buy their stocks at the, the lowest possible price. If you go into some of these more illiquid ones, um, they can be quite wide spreads. And so you might be losing a couple of percent on the trade to get in because of that. And uh, depending upon how the currency is done as well, um, if, as, as anyone who's, you know, used a bank for foreign currency, you know, that's where banks love to um, uh, to make some up some extra margin is by just giving you a really crappy um, 
uh, exchange rate on 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 foreign currency, and so um, you know that's often a risk as well that you need to look at for uh, for your um, you know if you're buying some sort of more esoteric um, uh, exchange traded funds, um, you know that that maybe there's uh, there might be issues in terms of how they're trading. Cool. Um, yeah, that's that's the only sort of comment we've just got at the moment. So um, yeah, let's move on to smart beta. Yeah, actually, oh, sorry, I might answer the one about the um, the Vanguard S&P, so Warren Buffett one. Sorry. Oh, yeah, okay. So, yeah, I missed that one. Uh, Chris said he saw an interview with Warren Buffett who suggested uh, the best long-term investment uh, was a low-cost, uh, low-fee index fund, uh, such as a Vanguard S&P 500. Uh, and Chris is just appre- uh, asking, he'd appreciate your opinion uh, from an Aussie perspective. Yeah, look, I think there's a, um, you know, Warren's saying that while managing his own money because he thinks there's some benefit to, to active management. Um, but I guess what he's saying is if you're not sure and you, you're worried that you might get ripped off, then um, an exchange-traded fund is, uh, or sorry, like a low-cost index fund is is a pretty good option. Um, you're you're going to get average performance and, and you know, it might be more volatile, but but it's, you know, for, for people who, who aren't particularly interested and just want to buy, set and forget, then, then that may well be a good strategy. And, and we've, we offer ourselves, we offer a number of those types of ones to people who, who don't want the active management, you know, they can just jump in and get the passive side. Um, so, yeah, so, so have no problems with that. We have products ourselves for it. I think the, the main one I just want to highlight for an, for an Aussie investor is um, that if you're doing that on the ASX, um, just noting that you, you are getting this massive exposure to banks and a massive exposure to resources that you wouldn't see elsewhere. And, you know, any, in, in any other country, if you turned around and said, oh, I'm going to, um, uh, you know, I've got a portfolio, I'm going to stick you in, you know, if you're a US investor, Sam, and I'm sitting in the US and I'm saying, and I'm going to buy 15% resources for you or 20% resources as part of that, you know, you'd be like, oh, you know, taking a huge swing at the resources sector. And if you get it wrong, mm. you know, I'm off suing you because you had too much exposure because I had too much exposure to resources and possibly similar in financials. If you came back to me and said, you know, I'm going to fill a portfolio with 50% banks and 50% financial, sorry, 50% um, banks and 50% resources um, in Australia, that's just your market portfolio. In Europe, you know, you, you put a client in that and, and it goes wrong and, and you're getting sued for, for malpractice. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that's the, the, uh, the thing to note for Australia is, uh, you know, do you want that exposure to, to banks and resources? Um, and then, you know, sort of consider whether, you know, whether there's other ways to, to get your exposure, your lower cost one. And actually, that's that's probably a good intro for later on. We'll talk about direct indexing. We'll, we'll speak about some ways where you can, um, you know, much easier ways to do it through direct indexing, which is uh, a, a sort of newer te- technology that we'll, yeah, we'll talk later on in the, uh, in the podcast about. Yeah, and Damien, in the in the Aussie perspective, uh, do you have any view uh, which is sort of better with the ASX two hundred or the ASX three hundred? I mean, with the, the three hundred, you, you know, you're likely getting uh, more, more small caps. Yeah, look, it the, makes much difference. The reality is, um, uh, once you get like the the top twenty something stocks makes up eighty or ninety percent of the um, the index anyway. So really, once you when you go to the eighty six two hundred, you, you're getting diversity in terms of the stocks, but um, but they're not making much difference to your overall performance. So um, yeah, so so in in a lot of the ones we'll do as a direct index, we, we'll run sort of twenty five or, or or thirty stocks for the for the Aussie, and the performance is not significantly different from what from what you're going to see in the two hundred. So I guess what I'd say is for people who who are interested in particular stocks in the two hundred, um, 
you know, it's this idea of having this core, if this is like your core portfolio that's saying, I just want to get that because it's going to get me most of the performance of the market is, is you know, a smaller one is just as good as, or not just as good, sorry, but it's not significantly different to some of the larger ones. And then if you've, if you've got particular stocks you want to own or particular sectors, you know, buy those ones around it as opposed to saying, I'll just take one of everything with the view that, um, you know, hopefully I'll get some stocks that, that go well. Okay, yeah, it's a good point. Um, okay, so let's talk some smart beta ones now. So, um, and, and these have sort of been described by people uh, quite aptly as um, dumb beta plus smart marketing because um, it's, uh, you know, a lot of smart beta, beta ones, they're, they're these mathematical models that, that come out and they're, they're there to help generate performance. And you get some pretty good names from whether it's, um, you know, the, the quality indexes or the value indexes or the growth indexes or, or whatever it is. Um, what they're trying to do is they're trying to dig in on a factor. And they don't always work, but they, but they usually do. Um, and it's worth noting as well, as I've said in a few of these, there's sort of this implicit assumption about um, that whatever your stocks you're buying in these um, won't that, that, that there's that it's it's a non-reversion um, uh, uh, thing and I'll, I'll get into that in a, in a minute when I talk about a few of the uh, examples so um, the problem with the uh, so the problem with a lot of the smart beta exchange traded funds that you get is that yes you're getting exposure to the factor you wanted um, but the the smart beta ones are fixed on a they've got a very fixed formula and they need to have a very fixed formula so that um so they're telling people look this is what we're going to do uh and so the 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 formula might be um you know volatility of earnings or something like that and it's some some just mathematical formula about the volatility of the earnings and then you get a pandemic happen and you might get a stock that um has a massive fall for a month or two and then a bounce back and it happens to report in that section and you know and whatever happens to its earnings and it gets kicked out of the index and another stock that didn't happen to report in that time period and 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 so you know might have suffered exactly the same fall but 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 because of the mathematical nature sort of gets kicked out doesn't get kicked out and and then somebody who's more active with it or following those strategies can can look at those and cater for the differences um sometimes these smart beta ones though they just sell it because that's what it is that's what the that's what happened and, and that's what the um, uh, the model says and so it has to go out. Um, accounting standards change um, and some of these things keep running the same models. So, so they had something that was like, um, you know, here's, here's a successful measure of say return on equity that, that generates quality or, or whatever it is. And then the accounting standards have changed for, for what constitutes equity. And um, the smart bit of, you know, the smart in, in inverted commas beta strategy keeps doing that strategy, even though the counter standards have changed and, and they won't work out for another 10 years that this, this strategy no longer works because of the, because of the accounting change. But that was the formula they started it with. And that's the one they're going to keep going with because otherwise they've got to change the whole constitution and it's a real hassle and, and, and you know, all that top stuff. Whereas somebody who's, um, you know, following that strategy from a more active point of view would then say, well, if I'm trying to buy quality stocks and the accounting standards change, then I'll change what I'm, what I'm going to do. Um, uh, but the, the first question I always ask with any of these strategies is whether you're selling insurance to the rest of the market. <laughs> and what I mean by that is um, it's a, uh, yeah, the, the, the book, The Black Swan sort of, you know, explains this in, in a lot of different ways. Um, but, but a lot of it is, is about saying that there's, there are strategies out there where 
you're providing liquidity to say to everyone else in the market. Um, and that by doing that, um, because, well, sorry, you're, you're effectively selling insurance against, against a negative event. And everyone else in the market is saying, I will pay you, Sam, a dollar a day to, um, to take this risk for me because I don't want to take it. And you're sitting there going, hey, isn't this fantastic? I made a dollar today and I made a dollar the next day and a dollar the day after that. And look at that. You know, over the last year, I just made $365. How easy is this? Every day I win. I just, I never, never lose. It just keeps making this money. And then one day, all of a sudden, you lose $10,000 on the trade. And you're like, oh, you know, I've only, I've been running this for 10 years and I'm thinking about how, what a great, what a great thing it was and how, you know, back tested over 10 years. And I can see that you would have made, you know, $3,650. And then I've lost three times that in, in, in you know, in a couple of days on, on it because effectively everyone was saying, I don't want to take this risk um, that, that something, you know, a, a big negative event happens, but, but you were the one taking that. And so, um, yeah, so that's, that's always the, the, um, uh, the question. So once, especially when you get some of the, um, you get some fancy black box one, black, black box strategies and, and then they're all about, you know, short gamma, long gamma, weird deltas and you know all these things that are sort of option pricing uh, terminology and lots of greek letters um yeah you need to be extra careful in those ones because um yeah often they are and we saw a few the few of those blow up a couple of years ago um uh when and, and just go to zero like these etfs that just went yeah effectively went to zero and closed up and then we're back out you know a few uh a few months later making lots of money on, the, on those same trades but because it's sort of like an insurance type product and so, um, yeah. So every time, yep, ask that question. Um, but you know, as a, I've just got a couple of examples. We've done some other quant ones on here, but I've got the sort of the five biggest um, sort of quant factors that that you usually see out there in terms of number is is momentum, and basically that's that stocks that go up um, are going to keep going up. And so what you're assuming in that is that there's there's no there's no mean reversion. So I'm making an assumption that this is going to keep on going forever, and um, you know, it usually won't. Um, and momentum is usually one of these strategies that does very well at making small amounts and then all of a sudden giving back a lot. So, you know, it's, it is a question of timing for that one. But it is a, you know, and, and the other one, it's trading cost as well because it's a high turnover strategy. Um, low volatility is that same thing. I'm buying stocks that are low, that have a low volatility and they're going to keep being that way. Uh, buying growth stocks, buying growth stocks that are growing strongly with the expectation they're going to keep growing strongly. Um, Quality stocks is the same. I'm buying them because they're quality, and I think they're going to stay high quality. Um, but value is actually the opposite. So value is basically saying I'm buying stocks, stocks that are cheap, but I expect them to become you know more reasonably priced over time, so that they will actually mean revert. And so um, you get different price you know effects on on diff these different strategies. But um, yeah, I guess yeah, and we've done other podcasts on it. But I guess the overall part is. Um, there's there's some interesting strategies you can get from these and and often you can get factors that i actually quite like to get exposure to you know trying to get trying to find stocks that have got growth and and a good growth mixture of growth a good mixture of quality and a good mixture of value is exactly what i do all the time in terms of trying to pick stocks um the issue is you know would i like to set up a formula today based on back testing and then never change that formula ever again and i'd say no absolutely not because i know accounting standards will change and i know things will happen to companies will automatically try to start trying to game these 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 um these mechanisms and 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 the things that they know everyone's using, and so um yeah, I, that's that's my 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 main issue with smart beta. Uh, and I've just got a, a chart up that shows a few um some of the performance you get from it, 
and it really can value. So it really can change, sorry. Particularly, say, the value um, one. I've, I've just put up that as a, as a top one on that chart. So you can see that um, what we're looking at is uh, the year so far, the year to date. And so if you had bought um, the, the most, uh, the cheapest stocks and sold the most expensive stocks, um, you would have made about 12% so far this year in terms of valuation. But um, you can see as you go back in time that that's one strategy where you know you make 12% one year while everyone else is losing money. And then you get a year like 2020 where you lost almost 30% of your, your, your money on that while everyone else made lots of money. And then again in 2018 and again in 2015 where you have these periods where um, yeah, sometimes these strategies can, can, um, uh, can really really diverge from the rest of the market. Um, and so it's making sure that you're you're buying them for what you think is the right reason. So you might be buying value value stocks because you do want to own value stocks, not just as a um, you know I've heard sounds good. I'll, I'll, I'll buy some now. It's like a question about you know is there a market timing element because you you're effectively making a decision not to own the other stocks, um, and and that's so effectively you're taking you know that's that's I guess the the um, uh, the the, the, the dichotomy or the, the incongruence in, in these is, is in a way you have people telling you, um, oh, active managers can't outperform the market. Um, so just buy the value factor and forget about it. And you're like saying, well, that's an active decision. By just buying the value factor, you've actively made a decision not to buy other stocks in the market. And so, um, yeah, I guess that's, um, that's probably enough on, on Smart Beta. Uh, direct indexing, though. That's probably the key one I wanted to cover off on is, um, so this is exploding in the US at the moment. Uh, there's, you can see, I've got, a, I've got a chart up here just showing how much um, funds are in direct indexes. Uh, so uh, sort of hung around about 100 billion for, for a few years back there in the, in the, in the sort of mid-teens and, and it's sort of 350 by, by 2020. I think it's over 500 now and there's, there's talk about it. Um, uh, there's a number of people with estimates thinking it's going to hit 1.5 trillion well before the um, uh, well before the end of the decade. Sort of, I think over the next two or three years, actually, they're expecting it to, to sort of hit maybe 2025 to hit those levels. So um, yeah, it's been huge in the US. Um, there's a I've got a list here of of the, all the big guys in the US are, are all buying out the small fintechs. So you know Charles Schwab, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, BlackRock, J.P. Morgan, Vanguard, Franklin Templeton. Um, Pgm, uh, you know, all these big names, uh, Fidelity, have all either created their own or, or most of them have actually bought um, existing players in the in the market, and so um, it's it's clearly an area that all the big guys think is going somewhere. Um, it's clearly an area that um, investors are, are embracing, and, and for us, it's it, it absolutely makes sense as to why people would prefer to have a direct index rather than an exchange traded fund. Um, and so, what is a direct index? So that's probably the first question. Is um, is it's it's a it's an index where um, you start with the index itself um, or some sort of index, and then you actually customize it to what you want. And so, it was exactly um, you know, what an example of what we do for, for people in it is. You can either use our own, you can either do it to our own actively managed portfolios, or let's just say you want the passive portfolio, and you're you're this you're an Australian investor, and you're like, well. I want to invest in Australia, but I actually don't want to be 50% banks and resources. I'd like an Australian portfolio that's a bit more, you know, that's weighted a bit more like a normal one. 
And so um, you can come in and cut stocks out or cut sectors out and say, okay, I'll take I'll take the Australian index X banks and and, and resources and I'll you know I'll buy those separately, or um, uh, or you can do the, all the ethical screens over the top, and you can say, okay, well, actually, give me, uh, you know, give me the global index, but but I don't want anything to do with carbon in that. You know, cut out any of the carbon stocks, or, or cut out anything to do with nuclear or, or war or, or whatever your own personal um, feelings are on, on those ones. Um, and and also, um, so that's that's one part of it. You can also then add in some tax strategies in terms of actually being able to um, uh, sell some of the losers and actually harvest some of the tax uh, losses um, or, or Investors in the US can do that. Australia is a little bit more limited in terms of um, what you can do, but there are tax strategies that that um, uh, that are available in Australia as well. Uh, and and we're looking at adding in some ones now into to our portfolios, and, and you do have them in in um, a lot of the the overseas ones where you can start adding sectors as well. So saying, okay, well, I'll I'll take a I'll take a global market, you know, X X uh, tobacco, X carbon, and and I want some extra technology stocks in there. And so, um, yeah, that type of thing is possible, or and, and especially if you're, what you might find is people who already own their own their own business in a particular area. You know, let's say you've got a business and you're a, um, you know, a property. You're in the property market. Um, uh, you might decide that you know if you've, you you own your own property, you're in the you're in a business that runs that's in property as well. Um, you don't need property in your in your investments. You've already got enough in that in your personal life or, or other investments. So on your share market, you just cut all of the property sector completely out of your portfolio and, and maybe banks or something like that as well. So you know, direct indexing it really does give this this customization part where you can still rely on uh, sort of professionally managed portfolios, but without having to do everything. Um, and so. You know, it's it's a part about saying, well, you could do this by building up this from with a stockbroker or, or setting it all up yourself. But the issue then is you've got to then manage that portfolio and make sure that when stocks drop in and drop out and corporate actions happen and all this other stuff goes on, that you're actually still in the portfolio you thought you had. Whereas with a direct index, you're saying, you know, I want the, I, you know, I want the 25 or the 40 largest stocks um, in, in this market. You manage that for me, but just make sure you don't buy any. Um, uh, you know, any carbon stocks or whatever it is you decided to, to cut from that portfolio. Yeah, and Damien, just one other distinction I just want to add is with a traditional exchange traded fund or index, you just buy one security and uh, the managers buying all the underlying securities, whereas mm. the direct indexing, you actually own all those stocks individually. And that's what really gives it that ability to customize it and, you know, add things and, and align it to your ethical values and beliefs or, you know, have those sector or asset class tilts. And the tax benefits as well of that, because what you tend to find is that, and this is a, a very big one in the US because the tax laws are a lot easier about it, um, but you, you can still do this within Australia to a certain extent, um, but, you know, it's not as not as easy as in the US, but in the US, um, why they've exploded so much is because you can say, I just want to sell, I want to harvest all the tax losses. So buy me, you know, buy me the top 70 or 80 stocks and then sell the 10 that have, the biggest tax losses every year, and then buy them back, you know, six months later, or, or put them into a, or put those into similar securities, and then put me back into the, you know, put me back into that index fund in a few years' time. So you can have these strategies that actually get you that um, sort of harvest those capital gains for you every year, and sort of get you that that um, in the US you can for for some of your earnings you can use it like negative gearing. You can sort of write it off against your actual income, but but you know within Australia there's obviously benefits as well, just in terms of being able to say well. 
um, you know, I've got capital losses that you sort of um, you've you've got there to to offset your your, your capital gains at a later stage. Um, so I've got a a, a, ch a table up just sort of showing you know the most common ones. So there's sort of like there's four different um, ways people use it. One is for these tax focused strategies, um, which which does generate you know greater returns for you for your portfolios on on an after tax basis. Uh, if you're in the right, you know, depending upon what portfolios, you know, obviously if you're in pension mode in Australia, then then you're not getting any tax anyway, so so that doesn't sort of benefit you. But but you know, for other other more high high tax paying ones, um, the personalization, so you get all these, uh, you know, the social governments and the ethical screens you can do, and and other types of um, factors. You get you get all the rules based strategies. So you know, if you want some extra quality in the portfolio, or you want some extra um, value stocks in the portfolio, you can sort of under different ones, you can, you can add these sort of rules based strategies in. So you, you, you get those, you know, in, in the, in the quality, in the quantity that you like. Uh, and then the whole customization part about this, you know, or, you know, we, we see people who have got, say they're a banking executive and they're, they, you know, they're, they're investing in that and they're not allowed to invest in their own stock and, and they already get stock as well as, um, as part of the options plans. And they don't want to invest in competitors because they're, they're, you know, they're they're banking exec with lots of exposure to that sector already. Is they go okay? Well, give me the index, but but cut out all the banks so that they can, um, you know, they can see that those that you know that the the portfolios have been truly customised to their own investment needs and 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 thought about as as part of the greater pie versus just saying, hey, I'll take an ETF that's um that's that's just got all these things in it anyway. Yeah, and that that's a you know a good point with uh, uh, what we do, Damien. Is you know you have the ability to exclude Australian banks. So if you're bearish on the uh, Australian housing market, for example, or you just don't want that over concentration in financials that the Australian market offers, you know or, you've got. The or you already own the banks in back. your own name, and you know yeah. you've got. There's a lot of people we get see who get, you know they've been um, they've got shares as either they bought it. You know, twenty years ago, or they've they've got an inheritance or something like that, and they've got those shares already sitting there, and they're like, "Well, I've already got lots of banks, and I, I don't want to sell those ones because there's these huge capital gains baked in for for years." So, you know, let's not double up on everything. Hmm. Um, so, some of the other benefits you can get from them, um, you can actually do fractional shares for some of the US and and European now. So, we're sort of rolling that out, um, and it's quite common in the US. Um, but yeah, it was. Rolling that out now um, uh, over the next you know few months for for Aussie investors, uh, you, you've got that that thing about you know how much personalization you want. You can go active, you can go passive. You know, take your fee, pick on that. Um, fees is obviously important. Um, you know, uh, the fees we're sort of looking at on on some of our newer products, um, depending on how much you put in there, can be sort of as low as sort of um, you know, 20 basis points type thing for, for if you're putting lots of money into it, but, but sort of start at sort of 38 basis points for for um, for passive. Um, the, so the, the the types of fees you pay are, are pretty commensurate, commensurate with, with, I guess, what you pay on a lot of specialty ETFs. Um, so not not the, you know, if, you, if you're just buying the S&P 500, for example, you can get that for, sort of, I don't know, three or four basis points probably. But um, if you want some of the tax efficiency and, and, and customization, then sort of paying sort of twenty or thirty basis points for it is um, is a pretty yeah it, it's commensurate with say buying an Australian ETF which which would be priced around that same amount or buying say um, some of the global ones um, yeah might cost you more like a European ETF might is 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 in that range anyway so um, yeah so the fees are, are pretty cheap on these mainly because it's all technology driven um, 
nowadays. So it's it's much um, uh, they're, they're certainly much more accessible. But um, I guess where I guess where I'm getting to with indexes is uh, the overall part of indexes. There's there's some interesting parts to it. Um, for me, the ability to customize it is, is is the more interesting part for investors, and, and that's what you should be thinking about as as um, you know, direct indexing solutions um, that are that are out there. Um, is is looking at these and trying to work out how can you use these direct indexes to to not only you know, get the benefit of having these indexes and low fees, but actually incorporate it into the other things you're doing and actually have something that sort of fits um, you know, your, your own investment profile better. Yeah, uh, great. So we've we've had a, a question from Cam, another question from Cam. Uh, so he's asking if it's possible to build a short direct index uh, and in particular for some sectors of uh, ASX indexes. Uh, not that I know of, um, but, but there are, there's certainly ways to end up with the same effect. Um, so, so the, the issue is if, if you're going short, if you're doing a short index, short across a, um, short index by building up the individual stocks, the problem you, you generally get is, uh, it's, it's difficult to manage short positions and, and you can get calls on them and things like that. And if you've got to manage, you know, a hundred different positions, and and um, you know the cost to borrow and is different on others and, and all that sort of stuff. It can become it can become um, problematic. Whereas it's quite easy to go short the index. Um, there's lots of products out there that that um, uh, you allow you to go short an index quite easily. So I think what you may find is easy to do is go short the index um, through futures, uh, for example, and then buy the stocks that. Uh, by the sectors that you like. So, so put together, say, um, for some um, sort of custom um, uh, clients of ours, we've sort of put together managed sort of high net worths. We've put together sort of managed discretionary accounts where we might be, um, you know, we own a big chunk of the index, but we're underweight specific sectors, um, say banks and resources or, or whatever it is. And then we're short the index on the other side. And so the, the net effect is very similar to being short those, or the, sorry, it's the same as being short those those particular sectors, but you've just built it up a different way because it's 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 much easier to manage and, and much, um, uh, yeah, much easier to manage and, and generally would end up being lower cost than going short all those individual stocks. Okay, that's, that's a great answer. Um, so this is the last call for any final viewer questions uh, before we get into the investment implications. Uh, so just drop them in the chat below and we can answer them after this uh, segment. So now we've got the viewer question of the week. Uh, so this is for viewers to have some discussion in the comment section over the coming days. Uh, so the question for this week is, which invest investment strategy is your preferred for the second half of 2022? So feel free to post your thoughts, engage with us and some of the other viewers over the coming days. And uh, Damien, I'll pass it back to you for investment implications. I guess I just wanted to recap some of the some of the sort of investment side of it that it's worth um, sort of thinking about. So uh, there, there's trading opportunities around the indexes, but I just want to highlight to people that you know don't uh, and there's big trading opportunities, but don't don't think about it as oh, I've just seen this announcement that the stock's coming into the index, therefore if I rush out and buy it, it'll be successful. Um, that you know once the announcement's out, it's it's too late. You want to actually sort of be be preempting those. Um, uh, the quality versus value versus growth argument. So these are the three sort of biggest um, that I'd, I'd sort of, uh, something that if, if people are doing their own asset allocation or, or at least sector allocation, they should be thinking about how they're exposed on these ones. So what tends to happen with them is um, 
you know, when the economies are booming, um, is the time to be, you know, overweight growth stocks. Uh, when you're worried about um, sort of later stages of of um, economic of, of of downturns and um, sort of early stages of upturns, you probably want to be in quality stocks and, and value stocks. Generally, the the best performance comes from them at the late stages of the boom, where um, you know traditionally stocks that are uh, lower price sort of end up being um, coming up to, to to better value, like we've seen recently, where so say your banks and and particularly um, a lot of the uh, energy stocks have done really well um, sort of at the late stages of cycles, and so um, so yeah, thinking about how that fits and, and what your exposures are to those, um, and that can be you know with the, some of these indexes, you can you can either see what your exposures are or, or, or more actively manage it through ETFs or, or direct indexes. This idea about active versus passive, um, you know, taking taking your, your 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 choices there, and and if you are if you are going to be passive and and choose that because you've made a decision that active managers can't outperform, then um, at least acknowledge then if you are taking a bet on say uh, a growth index or a or a quality index is well you you've actually made an active bet yourself. So um, yeah, thinking about you know what are what are actually the implicit bets, and then also the part about um, you know, taking an Australian index, for example, you've taken a, a heavy exposure into banks and resources. Um, as long as you're comfortable with that, that's fine. Um, but at least you, you're acknowledging that you're taking a very different exposure to what um, investors might else. else. Um, is the whole idea about large versus small caps as well, and it's sort of that, that same idea um, in the quality of value is that you'll find large cap stocks tend to do better uh, in trouble and when there's times of trouble and in early stages of, rec of recoveries. Um, whereas small caps, um, when when you're talking about stocks starting to boom, that's when when small caps generally do generally do better. And then um, yeah, certainly have a look at direct indexing. Um, there is a um, uh, it is you know as I said trillions of dollars are ending up in it overseas, and it's because um, it, it's effectively the second you know ETFs 2.0 as, as I think we've been terming it is uh, there's plenty of opportunities to to, to provide you know, extra value and 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 extra customization to to investors to 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 fit better with with the the rest of your investments and and hopefully give you a a uh, a more appropriate exposure excellent nice one Damien so that almost wraps us up um, so thanks again for for putting on the show and uh, yeah really interesting episode I'm, I'm sure lots of people got lots of uh, value out of it thanks Sam Excellent. Uh, so we do welcome your feedback on the podcast, uh, especially in regards to suggestions for future topics. Uh, if you do have any, have, have, <coughs> excuse me, if you do have any ideas, please drop it in the comment section below, or send us an email at contact at nucleuswealth.com. Just a reminder, this is general advice and does not take into account your personal situation. If you do want to discuss your personal financial situation or uh, direct indexing, please go to our website at nucleuswealth.com forward slash contact and you can book a call with me. Don't forget to like the video now. And finally, if you know of anyone that might get some value out of today's episode, would really appreciate it if you can please share it with them. And also, if you'd like to see more of our previous episodes and content, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash content. And to stay up to date with us and, uh, uh, and news from us, you can also follow us on all major social media. Uh, so for myself, Damien, and the rest of the team at Nucleus Wealth, thanks for watching, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.